All right, we're going to talk a little bit um, um, tonight out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, <clears throat> I'll make some quotes from the New King James. I'll make some of them from the NIV versions of the Bible. But, and some of it we will kick back a little bit to some things that we've said, but I think they're important to say now where we are in our journey. Um, if you don't know by now that um, the most important revelation in Scripture to me personally is something called the New Covenant, then you really haven't been listening too much. Okay? We, we've spent uh, years now speaking about that. Now, I appreciate, um, again, if you come from where I came from, um, the appreciation of the new covenant requires a lot of dismantling of stuff that we learned because we were very ingrained in in what the Bible calls the old covenant. The old covenant was based in law. The Ten Commandments were part of the old covenant. The problem with the old covenant, which was based in law and commandments, was that it could never change a person's heart. And yet it was actually really good. It was good at being a law. As far as the law goes, it's probably the best law that's ever been given in all of time and history. Um, But you see, laws can only do one thing, and that's condemn. Right? Laws bring condemnation. And so we, we have, and again, I'm very briefly talking about this, come to an understanding that that a lot of this stuff that was the Old Testament journey of the, of, of, of the people of God, God's dealings with a people called Israel, who we now know as the Jewish people, um, the law was a major part of that journey. But it's sometimes hard to get your, your head around that that God would help them understand something by having by showing them what wouldn't work in order that they would have a desire for what would work, okay? So um, changing society and changing people's lives by the rule of law actually doesn't work. Now you might say, yeah, it does. Well, here's how I know it doesn't work, because if you remove the rule of law, the animalistic nature takes place, and very quickly society deteriorates into what it always was, but law was just holding it back. Right, So that's all law ever does. Law controls behavior. It holds back behavior, but it never, it never changes the heart. Now, the new covenant in Jesus was that we have a, a transformed heart, a changed life. That's why terms like born again from John chapter 3 come up. Um, and, and conversion and transformation are all important words in the New Testament because they are expressing what is supposed to happen in our life in the new covenant, that then if we become good people, it's not to impress God, but we become good people, whatever that means. Okay? And again, we could talk about that all night. We become good people because there is a transformation taking place in here in our hearts. And I, I also believe that that helps us to appreciate, get a hold of, and become... Um, integrated with a relationship with, with God the Divine, with God the Father. Um, so, I mean, that, that's just a little bit about that. And um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it, it's talking some stuff about 
not just the old covenant, that covenant of the law, and the new covenant, which was established in Christ, which we now live in, which made the law obsolete, but, but it's talking about how that impacts our life and what that, what that causes our potential to be and how we can realize that potential. So I'm going to jump around a little bit to a few verses, but um, in, in, in chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, um, I'm going to use one version of the verse, but I'm going to put three words in that are used in three different versions of the Bible, and, and it's this, who also made us, and here it says ministers, okay, who also made us ministers, the New King James says competent. Um, Another version says sufficient and another version says adequate. So he has made us competent. He has made us competent, sufficient, adequate as ministers. Now, of course, when you minister something, think of administration. Ministering something means that you're administering it out. So this is not about receiving the new covenant. This is about you being competent and sufficient and adequate as a minister of the new covenant for the new covenant coming in you and through you. So he says, who also made us competent, sufficient, adequate as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, to Paul's audience, this in, in the culture of Corinth, and particularly with a measure of, of Jewish audience within the people he was reaching to, um, this would need very little explanation. It needs a little more explanation to us. Because what does he mean? Not, not, not of the letter, but, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What he's drawing is the contrast between this law-laden, heavy-demanding system that that was written down. And, of course, he's now also got some cross-cultural things because we're now in in Greco-Roman culture and in Corinth. So so you're in the very heavy time of, of written law and that kind of thing. Uh, and he says, he says, all that stuff does actually is kills, but, but the Spirit gives life. Now, I'm going to explain that a little bit, and he's going to explain what he means by that a little bit later on in the chapter. But where I want to start with that verse is, if he made us competent, sufficient, adequate as ministers of the new covenant, um, what does it mean to be competent as a minister of the new covenant what what does it look like to be able ministers of the new covenant Um, competent ministers of the new covenant are not so because of their ability with the letter but because of their familiarity with the spirit so the first thing that he's drawing attention to is that our ability is not based in our grasp of the letter. Now, let, let me state that in two forms. Number one, um, the weight of Jewish culture coming through that was based in the letter of the law. You ever heard that phrase? Keep the letter of the law. So, 
so you've still got all that stuff coming through. And of course, Paul, who's teaching this also, um, he, was, he was part of one of the very strict educated sects of the Jewish community that was very schooled in, in, in the letter of the law. And the whole way it was, there is a law and you have to keep it to the letter if you want to pass the test of the law. However, um, there's also another, another um, little context to this, I think, in, in, uh, in, in what Paul is writing. When he says that it's not with the letter, but because, uh, uh, not because of their ability with the letter, but because of their familiarity with the Spirit. Um, the other context is this, that um, I'll use a couple of words, orthodoxy and theology. Now, both are good, and they're terms you're going to come across if you're in conversation or debate. Orthodoxy means how a thing was in its inception, and therefore, to be orthodox is to try and repeat the form of the original expression. So when you hear things like the Orthodox Church, you know, um, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, what have you, um, I, I am very unconvinced that their orthodoxy is orthodox. But it's orthodox to the version of orthodoxy that they've adopted. Hence, hence orthodoxy uh, is a very questionable statement. Um, the, probably the greatest tool in debate for dismantling, not that as a practice, because I admire people who, who, who adhere to an orthodox practice. That, that is not my... My problem, and some people like that kind of approach to their spirituality. That's not my problem. It's when we start making wild claims that this is it, and not only is this it, but this is the only it. And if you don't adhere to this only it, your belief system is not orthodox. So, so here's my, my main argument when I'm in conversation about that, is that the people who crucified Jesus were orthodox. Their whole religion was based on orthodoxy from the law of Moses, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the temple, worship, giving, praying, prophecy. You couldn't get more orthodox than they were. In fact, Paul was an orthodox Jew believing that and he was persecuting the Christians. So, so the danger of orthodoxy and using that term is that it was orthodoxy that crucified Jesus. And they were, they were orthodox to the law of Moses. They were orthodox to their history, but it left no room for Jesus and it left no room for this thing called spirit. Okay? So, so that's the orthodox bit. The other one is theology. Okay? Um, theology is a... Of course, theology has been misrepresented. People think theology is about understanding the Bible. Uh, you know, so we've got we've got a good a good reply to that straight away. Because theo theos 
is God. Ology is the study of. Theology is the study of God. It's not the study of the Bible. So therefore, the Bible is not the primary ingredient of theology. God is the primary ingredient of theology. So if we allow this strange thing called spirit to be what engages us with God. So the Bible says God is a spirit. God is spirit. Now, now I know, you know, sometimes we, <clears throat> again, I, I never even questioned things like that because it was part of my life. It was part of my family. <clears throat> Some of you, it wasn't. Um, I, I don't, still don't struggle with, with um, concepts like that because this room is full of air, we are breathing air, we're breathing oxygen, the room is full of it, it will never be any less full than it is, it will never be any more full than it is and we not consciously but subconsciously breathe in and breathe out into the atmosphere and we can't see it and you can't feel it and you can't touch it but it's there and it exists and it's part of our lives and it's outside this building, it's inside this building, so even little things like that um, helped me to appreciate that spirit is not such a it's not such a crazy concept to get your head around okay because we live with unseen things every day even more so in our generation I've talked about this before but you know these things you know and and sending signals from that to there and all this stuff um, it's all going on unseen uh, happening and it can, be, it can be linked into or it can be ignored. But nevertheless, it is there, whichever the case. So, so coming back to theology, um, uh, theology is not the study of Scripture. Theology is the study of God. Now, once you release it to be that... Um, you have to demote Scripture a little bit. Now, I didn't say you have to get rid of Scripture, but you have to demote it a little bit because in much of theology, um, God has become the servant of scriptural interpretation rather than scriptural interpretation becoming the servant of the revelation of God. Hence the reason why you or I um, could go into any one of the is it 30,000 denominations across the world? 30,000 denominations that are growing by five. Growing by five, it's either a day or a week. And uh, you could get into situations where there will be, sometimes our fist fights, uh, but certainly um, angry exchanges over this other thing that's linked to theology called doctrine, okay? Doctrine. Um, one of the problems with, with doctrine, which is the, which is the um, assigning of structure to a theological belief or a cultural belief or a sociological belief, is that doctrine can very easily become a dogma. A dogma is when you, this is it, I'm done, that's it. And uh, I tweeted, I, some, sometimes I, I tweet these brilliant tweets and I'm most upset that I'm not appreciated. I tweet, some people might have thought, well, you know, it's just, it's grumpy old man syndrome that he's got, it is sometimes. 
Um, I tweeted on a Sunday morning as I was thinking, reading, and, and meditating a little bit that that um, uh, the only thing that will happen in, in some churches today is that they'll walk the dogma. Yeah. I, I need a higher class of audience, really. That's the problem. I'm, I need a higher class. That's the... Um, so, what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to loosen things up and say, and say, there is a kind of safety in the letter, okay? There's a kind of safety in everything being laid out and set down, and, and one immovable dogmatic conclusion about what he's set down. There's a kind of safety in that, that all of us, we're drawn towards that. But, but he goes on to say that, but the letter kills, so the stuff that we often find our security in and, and adhere to actually can be killing us rather than giving life to us, is, is Paul's point. So, so he's got to get us to a place where we appreciate there's something bigger than the dogma of doctrine. There's something, there's something bigger than theology that makes God the servant of scripture rather than the other way around. There's something that is a problem with orthodoxy if our orthodoxy is more than just a way that we like to express our spirituality. Okay. <clears throat> so competent ministers of the new covenant are not so because of their ability with the letter. So um, I, I like knowledge. I like, I like study. Um, I like investigation. Um, I like communicating um, what it is that we have discovered. But I also have to realize that, 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 that I am not competent as a minister of the new covenant if I have an ability with the letter. Because, uh, sad to say, there are, there are many people who have a big platform but nothing to say. There are many people who have no platform but lots to say. Because being, being, uh, having an ability with the letter, um, Adolf Hitler had an ability with the letter. He was a great orator and he convinced two nations, Germany and Austria, to embrace and engage in the Nazi ideology, which of course, you know, brought brought devastation to, to, to uh, Europe and the Baltics and, you know, greatly shaped the world that we're in today. But we would know uh, Hitler as a monster, but he was a great orator. It was his speeches, those great crowds and speeches. And then, of course, you know, it, it did help having the Gestapo and all that as well to back it up. But I've been around Christianity enough to know that we have oratory and we have the Gestapo at times to back it up, to make sure you don't step out of line, to make sure that if you don't, if you don't have the same dogma we have, we'll put you out of our denomination. Or if you try to resolve this problem in a way other than we have defined, we won't allow you to be accredited or we'll, we'll dismiss you and speak against you. And, uh, you know, we can, we can sadly create a Gestapo-style ministry I think there have been times in my life where um, 
out of both passion and fear, I have, I have probably engaged in that kind of mentality. We have to make people, we have to convince people, but not just by words, but we have to speak in such a way that they feel a little bit uneasy and threatened, and then we have to make sure we have the henchmen to push it, push it home. <clears throat> so, so, there's this issue of familiarity with the Spirit. That's why we should not be too quick to condemn or criticize uh, people who have sought to engage uh, in a road of spiritual discovery that is outside of our own models and convictions. Now, um, I believe there are false gods out there. I, I don't believe that all roads lead to the same end. But I believe that there are people with all, in all roads who find their way to the life that comes only from the Father through through Jesus the Son. What I love that I discovered about Jesus is that whether I knew it or not, Jesus still paid everything for me. My knowing it didn't mean because I knew it that he'd done it for me. If I'd never known it, it was still done for me. So that helped me resolve sometimes the issue of, you know, what about the person in undeveloped countries who never heard the gospel as we understand it? I don't have a problem with that. Because uh, if, God's, if God's too unable uh, and incapable that without Western technology he can't reveal himself, then, you know, ain't much of a God, is he? Um, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. And again, that's, that's another story about how all that works. Um, but this idea Paul's driving at is, is we must start from a basis of familiarity with the Spirit. That should be... Um, our point of connection with people, right? Because God's point of connection with you is not through the letter, it's through the spirit. It's through him having a familiarity with your spirit and getting your spirit to engage in a familiarity with his spirit so that there is an engaging of the life of God that begins to flow through us. And so, and so when we engage people from the basis of the letter, you... Do you understand why often we actually turn people away from the truth? That that often the only people who got blessed and felt good was done was the person who was doing the condemning because we felt we did our, our bit for God. Now, I also don't want to be too harsh on that because if if your background is that that you will be condemned if you don't share the gospel enough or win enough people, then... You know, all of those kind of uh, models come to bear. So truth is what I'm saying in that is love everybody, don't reject anybody. But we will never achieve what Paul's looking for if, if what we do is based on the letter, right? In, interpretation of scripture is important. What Jesus said is important, but it's not the basis of this. He said it's not by the letter. That's the letter, and the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, when the Word and the Spirit become one, which Jesus has something to say in John chapter 1, when the Word and the Spirit become one, then life is what emerges. So, so what we try to do here is open up the culture of this house very much, that we, we can comfortably engage with not just people of... of other variations within the faith, but people of other faiths and people who have all manner of variations from, you know, atheism to spiritism to 
to, uh, you know, to uh, new age, to whatever. And again, don't misunderstand me that, that because you accept a thing does not mean you approve of a thing or that you are endorsing a thing. It just means that we start at the realm of spirit. Understand what I'm saying? So that's how we, we begin, as competent as ministers of the new covenant. Uh, not with the letter, but by the Spirit. Uh, so, let, let me read um, from verse 1 through to, to uh, verse 3. I'll read it in the NIV first, and then I'll read it in the New King James. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need... Like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you. I won't get too deep into this. So, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. Now this is the verse I want you to grasp. You show that you are a letter from Christ. You show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. So, so something bigger, some, something greater is going on here than quoting a few, a few texts and verses of the Bible. And as the Americans so love it, a proof text. A proof text is basically, I decide what it is I want to say. And then I'm bound to find something in 66 books of the Bible that can prove that what I'm saying is right. I don't like proof text preaching, okay? The Bible's a very challenging book, it really is. When you open your heart, so often it will shake you to the core. Uh, sometimes because it, it seems to be contradicting itself, but actually, when you really look at it, it's not contradicting itself. What it's doing is shaking you out of your tree to get a proper view of what it is you, you need to see. So, so not written with ink, uh, but with the Spirit of the living God. And listen, not on tablets of stone... Now, now I'm going to put another little bit in there. Okay, this is not in Scripture. Not on rice paper between leather covers, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul's saying the, the greatest writing that's taking place of God's letter to the world is happening on your heart. Now, bear in mind, Paul, in my view... Uh, never had the slightest inkling that the letters that he was writing to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians would be deemed somewhere along the line to be Holy Scripture. You'll find nowhere in Paul's writing that he's saying, what I'm writing will be what you guys know as the Bible in X number of years. Because the truth is, the Corinthians didn't have Romans, and the Romans didn't have Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians didn't have Ephesians. Because these were all written to specific churches that were breaking out. How were they breaking out? They were breaking out by the Spirit. Something was being written on people's hearts from this little sect in Jerusalem, that, that we came to know as, as Christians, that they began calling. But it was a little sect following a, 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 a guy from a, from a little no-bit one-horse town called Nazareth who had been crucified and who they were saying was risen from the dead and seemed to have evidence to prove it. And all of a sudden, this is exploding. Now, now they have no scriptures to deal with that other than 
some Old Testament scriptures that they could say, we think that this means that. Okay? We think this means that. Now, even Jesus quoted some Old Testament scriptures about himself, um, which is interesting to look at <coughs> what he, he did quote that from from book of Psalms and various places that were very much fulfilled accurately and specifically. Um, David even described crucifixion in one of his psalms before crucifixion was ever really understood about, you know, my bones, all my bones are pulled out of joints and talking about what Jesus did on the cross when he asked for a drink and all that stuff. So what I'm trying to get through to you though is here when, when this book of Corinthians is being written, there is no Bible. The, the Gospels were started being written 30 years after, after Jesus had died and was risen. You know, Paul's writings, you're pushing up into 90 AD by the time you've finished. So, so all they had was the Old Testament, and the Old Testament didn't have none of this stuff that we're talking about now. And, and Paul, I don't think, in a million years ever thought, oh, this letter that I'm writing today... Um, you know, believers in York in 2015 will know this as scripture. He might have taken a little more time or he might have freaked him out if he'd known that. I mean, it would have me. I'd have thinking, flip, I, I'm happy to write a letter to these Corinthians, but, you know, if in 2,000 years' time that's going to be looked at as holy scripture, that would freak me out completely. So thank God for guys like Paul... Um, and thank God that they had no idea how extensively what they were writing was going to reach. And thank God for the wisdom that's in it. Pretty phenomenal. But the point I'm making in this is that Paul can't write and say, in 2,000 years you will read this letter of Scripture. What he can say is that what's being written is, is weighing this. What was written on stone didn't do it. And what was transferred from stone to paper in the Hebrew scriptures didn't do it. And what he had inherited, which was something called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was translated two to three hundred years before Christ, which is the Bible that Paul used, he was saying this didn't do it either because it, it, it never gave you the insights that the new covenant was going to be so he said here's the wonderful miracle he said it's not happening like that now that's he wasn't saying that's not important but he was saying but but if that's all you have that will kill you and it'll kill everybody you come in contact with but if you can grasp for one minute that what's happening in this new covenant is it's being written on your heart that you have become the letter Okay? You have become it, a letter from Christ, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on the tablets of human hearts. The New King James puts it this way. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need as some other, others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Of course, an epistle was, is the old word for a letter. So if you're in the Anglican church and you're here, we will read today from the epistle of John. Um, that just means the letter, right? So it says, you are our epistle, written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. So it's saying the same thing again. You, the reason I wanted to read it from here is because if you were raised reading the Bible, you will know 
that the letters were called epistles. So I wouldn't want you to devalue the writing on your heart to say, yes, I'm a letter, but they were epistles. Do you see what I'm saying? You're not getting that one around me. So two versions, epistles, letters. So the very same terminology that we use for the books of the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the Gospels, and, uh, and Acts, which is a history record of the beginnings of the church, all those epistles, he says, you're the very same thing. Now that, that could be intimidating, but it's not meant to be intimidating. It's meant to be extremely encouraging and a real blessing. Because my problem is, if I'm, if I'm God's letter to the world, if I'm a letter from Christ, right, me simply sharing what's written on the tablet of my heart, not just, not just what I've learned and my ability with the letters, then, then should that intimidate me or, or should that at least make me think, what does that mean? What, what, does, that, what does that require? So a letter, an epistle of importance... He says, you are, that's what you are. So, so the question would be, if Paul says that's what you are, what can be learned from it? Now, don't mean what can be learned from it, what Paul said. What can be learned from it, the letter that you are? What can be learned from it? Because we're now learning from what Paul wrote, which was from his heart by the Spirit that he never knew would be Scripture. He's just writing to a bunch of people like I'm talking to you today, okay? But he's not with them, so he's writing it to them. So the question is, if you, are, if you are a letter, if you are a letter with the writing on your heart, your human heart, what can be learned from that letter? Well, let me say something. If you don't read the Bible through rose-tinted spectacles, which I advise you not to because it was never meant to be read through that, uh, you discover something very interesting. First of all, it's the strangest book of... of Anybody wanting to promote a particular belief system, it's really strange to focus on people who failed <laughs> and to write about their failures and to make their failures the basis for the story. But whether you go Old or New Testament, it's about failures and their failures being the basis for the story. So, if you don't read the New Testament with the road tinted spectacles, I, I would argue with you that sometimes Paul got it wrong. Sometimes Paul uh, reacted to a cultural situation, not realizing that what he was saying about that cultural situation would be taken by people outside that culture and decided as that's what we should do. So he so, said, well, how do you think Paul got it wrong? Well, First of all, if Paul didn't get it wrong, all you women should keep quiet in church. You should be frightening, frighteningly in submission to your husbands. And you should only pray with your head covered. And there's lots of other stuff that you realize culturally it was okay for that moment at that time in that culture. But you see, once you carry that through... Uh, the problem is then people will argue and, and you can get repression coming in because people took that. I don't think Paul meant it as a repressive statement, but the problem is if you live by the letter, if that's your theology, if that's your orthodoxy, then you cannot 
flow into modern life and you cannot have a living word from your spirit because all you can have is you've got to make sure that women shut up you've got to make sure that they wear head coverings you've got to make sure this you've got to make sure that you've got to do this about worship this is how you've got to discipline people and there's no flexibility because there never is in law but in the spirit it's huge flexibility you know when when the bible says about god i was patient with you That's called flexibility. In other words, I didn't jump down your throat the first time you made a mistake. I was patient with you. I hung with it. I hung with you. So so what can be learned from it, this letter written on your heart? Um, You know, what can be read into it? What, What can be concluded by it? What can be contributed to it? This this is this is not a finished work that is that is imprinted on your heart, because that then would be like the law. Remember, it was in stone, right? It was finished. There's no adding to it, no taking away from it. But he talks about a living letter that's of the Spirit, which means we're adding and we're taking away and we're adjusting and we're shaping, because this thing has the power to move with, with the movements of my life. It has the power to adjust and adopt the, the idiosyncrasies of my behaviors and my thoughts and my emotions and, and my dealings and my decisions, some of which are good, some of which are bad, some of which are really good, some of which are stupidly, awfully silly. But what we've not learned to engage, because if you live by the letter, there is no space to accommodate you being written. See, your letter, no space for it. But when we leave space for it, what we find in here is instead of having, you know, just the epistles of the New Testament, we've got a room full here of letters to the church, from the church, by the church, in the world, to the world, being written right now. That I'm going to say something that some people would call me a heretic for this, that are of equal importance to this that has been recorded. Okay? See, Jesus put the cat among the pigeons by being declared to be the Word of God, the living incarnate Word of God. Because all they could understand was Word in stone, Word in print, not Word in flesh. So, does it not follow that if we have become followers of Jesus, that the key issue for us is Word in flesh? Not word in stone, not word on paper. And Jesus quoted word on stone, greatest commandment. Jesus quoted word on paper when he would refer to the teachings of the, of the um, rabbis. But the key element was word in flesh. God incarnate, word in flesh. Okay, So, so the primary element of, of a developing revelation in the world when we are followers of Jesus is the word incarnate, the word in flesh. Now, if we take Jesus came and then we put him in a book and we decide that everything that needs to be said and written is in that book, we just took the word made flesh and we put him in words written on paper. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we lost the whole emphasis of the word made flesh, the word incarnate, the the wonderful miracle, this wonderful 
ability that comes when the word is flesh. So that's why when you read the story of Jesus' life, you see him dealing with all kinds of different people, from sick people in the temple on the Sabbath day, to women caught in the act of adultery, to to guys being lowered through the roof, to lepers, all these things. You see, Jesus' response as a constant irritant to the theologian, um, orthodox, right, religious people because suddenly the word has become flesh. It's alive. It's more interested in spirit than letter. It doesn't dismiss letter, but it's more interested in spirit than letter. So Jesus makes these crazy statements. They're, They're all hung up on their orthodoxy And Jesus says, it has been written, which it had, but I say unto you. What is that? That's that's called word incarnate, word made flesh. The the only law that he was breaking in that was was not God's law. The only law that he was breaking was our our inflexibility with, with the revelation of God into the world. He was breaking that model. He was saying, listen, I came as the word made flesh to show you there is a different way. And so if we, if we restrict the model of church, ecclesia, people of God, back to word in pages, we have missed the point of Jesus, which is word incarnate. But word incarnate in what? Not in the Pope, although I think the Pope is the word incarnate. Not in the Archbishop of Canterbury, who I think is a wonderful guy. Not in Anth Chapman, not in the leader of this movement or that movement. But everybody who has aligned themselves with the, with the cause of Christ, he says, you're a letter, you're a letter, you're a letter, you're a letter, you're a letter. And he said, don't worry, you're being written. Okay, It's being written. You see what it says? Uh, um, uh, ministers written not with ink, but by the Spirit of God on tablet, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is the heart. It's being written. So that poses questions when I said, what does this look like? It looks like, what is your life saying to me? What is your life saying to you? What is your life saying to us? Now, the religious mind would say, oh, well, you know, it should be saying, our God reigns, Jesus is Lord. Um, but your life might be saying to me, I struggle with my sexuality. Say, so how can that be? Because that's the story being written, see? It's the real story that says, okay, how does this pan out? How do, how do, how do we address that for that person? How is... What's happening there affecting what's being written here so that what's written here can affect what's, what's happening there. Or, or our young Jamie, bless his heart, who can't break the addiction to alcohol, that's his story being written. What does that say to us? What does it say to him? You know, what, what does it say to me? What does it say about me? 
And how does that writing then interact to realize that we, we have been dropped into the middle of ongoing stories, multiple stories, every one of us in here with a story, which is what on one hand complicates it, but on the other hand blesses it beyond measure if you can accept it. This is messy. Hence the reason why we like to go back to written on stone, written in parchment, keep it steady, because then we can judge people, we can do qualification by that, because we don't like really the idea of word incarnate, but in this is the powerhouse of the kingdom of God. See, we're far too quick to jump to conclusions because we only read the letter of a person's life rather than the spirit of that person's life. So, somebody comes and says, I'm struggling with pornography. How do you react to that? Well, you could step back in disgust. You could be thinking, how can you say you're a follower of Jesus when, you know, and all the kind of nonsense. Or you could say, right, well, in that case, we're going to have to make some rules about you and what you can and can't do in the church, etc., 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 But is that because we're only reading the letter of a person's life rather than the spirit of that person's life? Remember, I may remember a lady by the name of Ulrika Johnson. Ulrika was a a very um, pretty Swedish girl who uh, shot to fame, I guess, in the 80s. Um, Was at one time the partner of ex-England managers Sven-Goran Eriksson. Um, Ulrika became more known for her sexual exploits than for her journalism and presenting skills. Uh, Was very hounded by the press and uh, in, in many ways pretty much not only ruined her but also damaged her. Um... And if you looked at the situation and only read the letter of Ulrika's life, you know, like, well, multiple relationships and, you know, blah, 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 you come to conclusions. But see, when you realize that she grew up as a small girl in a separated family with a father when she was a little girl child would bring different girlfriends home every night and have sex with the women in front of Ulrika, never considering what this was doing to the child, when you read the spirit of it, you have a different conclusion about the person. You jump to another conclusion. So what I'm trying to say to you is that we're far too guilty of only reading the letter of a person's life and the letter kills. Rather than the spirit of a person's life, which is much more important than the letter. And that's when we learn to realize that there are many situations in our lives that we need lots and lots and lots of grace. We need lots of compassion and sometimes we need lots and lots of time. And sometimes we need not to give up. Don't, don't give up on dear old Jamie, bless his heart. You know, he tells me every other week he's, he's giving it up, he's off into rehab and then we arrange, we've taken him to rehab twice. And I don't mean to talk out of school on Jamie. Jamie loves me, I'd say it if he was sat here. Um, 
he, he's, he's trying as much as he knows how to try, but what, what, if, what if Jamie never gets free? Is the love of God still all, all over his life? Will, will he have an abundant entrance into the presence of God? Will, will Jesus still say, well done, good and faithful servant? Now, of course, you know, it's easy and has always been easy in the church for people to say, well, you should minister deliverance and release to that person. Yeah, it's funny people are always telling you what you should do. My answer to that is go do it then. If, you, if you're so good at that, go do it. Don't, don't be telling others what they ought to do because that's by the letter, see? I've seen it work, I've seen it not work because... A lot of it's down to the person. Okay, so letter. Dear old Jamie, some of you need to know that, 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 that poor guy came in here as a teenager and um, uh, we had a lot of interaction with him. He really fell in love with us and we fell in love with him. He was a bit of a lad about town. He never, you know... Um, if you are measuring his claim to relationship with God behaviourally... You might have marked him a two on the scale or something like that. I don't know. Um, but there was very definitely an open heart. Um, he got himself in a situation one night where he got into a fight. He hit somebody. That person fell over, banged the head, finished up dying. And poor old Jamie uh, then had to deal with the issue of taking another man's life. And finished up. In prison, he'll tell you this story himself. So, you know, it's not an issue. He'll tell you this story. Finished up doing a long prison sentence and struggled ever since to forgive himself. So, see, Jamie doesn't drink because he wants to drink. Jamie drinks because he can't forgive himself. And I've tried to focus, and Chris and others have tried to focus in on Jamie, you know, God forgave you before you ever did anything. He's not held it against you. And you've been forgiven and we love you and it's time to forgive yourself. But, but he struggles with that. So what I'm trying to get through to you, that's a very practical example that you could look at dear old Jamie and if you only read the letter of his life, you will draw conclusions that are not correct. And you read the spirit of his life, that's going to change... The, the way that you deal with him, what you will do for him, how you will engage, what of his story you will allow to impact you and to change you in compassion and in love and kindness. And that's how it was meant to be, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when we read the spirit of a person's life, which we ought to do, rather than the letter of a person's life, that gets us to where... We read the epistle that's being written on them. Do you know a letter from Christ is being written on Jamie? It's really messy. But imagine you go into the stories of the Bible like King David and say, a letter from Christ is being written. There were times when you would have thought, there's no way this is a letter from Christ. But, but when you look back at the story, you think, wow. So everybody preaches the wow part of the story. I often wonder, how would you have felt about David if you didn't have the bits that you know now about how it all turned out? What if you weren't 
in an era where you knew how it turned out, you're only in an era when the stuff's going on, how would you feel then? What would you have said about David's fitness to be king then? What would you have said about him retaining power? What would you have said about his marriage to Bathsheba? What would you have said? See, we can sit here, because we know the end of the story, and, 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 and get all full of our own self-righteousness, when actually we're in those stories right now. We're in those adulteries, we're in those murders, we're in those struggles right now. But if you didn't have all the end of the Bible, all that stuff was happening that we now read about. All that's happening in you, all that's happening in me. I'm trying to encourage you that there is a writing going on in our heart that when we cooperate and let the hand of God come on the the pen as that begins to write, we get outcomes like David got. You know, blessed is the man who, whose sins are forgiven, to whom the Lord does not in, impute his iniquities, because the Lord is my shepherd. We get those kind of outcomes. So, so I keep making a statement which, which I think is critical to understanding the process of judgment and non-judgment in the context of life and humanity. And I think you would do well to memorize it. I meant to put it on the screen, but I didn't do it. Um, But it's this, you'll have heard me say it. If you are not prepared to familiarize yourself with someone's story, don't presume yourself qualified to judge their actions. That's become a rule of thumb for me in the writing that's on our heart. If you are not prepared to familiarize yourself with someone's story, do not presume yourself qualified to judge their actions. That's why even the way we engage in let's call it discipline in a person's life, should not be the same for two people. But by the letter, we make it the same. And so the one in a thousand that that fits okay with is fine, but what about the other 999 that it doesn't? We just killed them. And it's not easy to book the trend. It's not easy to fight your cause and say, no, um, I know what the letter is that I'm supposed to abide by, but I, I, think, I think in the spirit, if I understand the person's story and not what they've done, but why they might have done what they've done, then how I deal with that is going to be different. Some of you may think that our disciplinary process in this house is extremely lax, and you would be absolutely right. It is. Um, but it is what it is, not because of ignorance, not even because of um, abdication of responsibility. It is what it is because I want to err on the side of not the letter of a person's life, but the spirit of a person's life. That Something is being written, and I don't want to interrupt the process of writing. I want to assist the process of writing. So when a person is struggling and their actions are saying one thing, I don't want to know what is your actions saying. I want to know what are the issues that have caused these actions, and that's where we pick up the story and engage with the story. And and more often than not, I have found people need to be given room and time and space and grace. Don't need people climbing all over them. Because all we do is correct behavior, but don't actually change hearts. So if you can memorize that, remember it. If you're not prepared to familiarize yourself with someone's story, do not presume yourself qualified to judge their actions. Uh, now, there's one little thing here, and then I'll try not to go 
too long. Sadly, some people want the letter of a situation rather than the spirit of it. Uh, that's because their spirit is not for reconciliation and forgiveness and, and kindness and forgetfulness. So people will react to what I'm talking to you about tonight and, and say, no, we, we want that, you know, we are going to react this way and we're going to apply this because we want the letter. Usually it's because um, their spirit is not for reconciliation or forgiveness or kindness or fellowship, or faithfulness. So, what I'm really saying in that is don't, don't anchor after the letter. You understand? I think we've defined that enough. Um, really encourage your heart to spirit, towards spirit, towards spirit. That's why then when someone walks into your life, uh, one of the things Chris and I have experienced, which is, is a blessing, but it's often... Um, sometimes more difficult for the people than it is for us is is not when people come back into our lives is not treating them as though they went out of our lives but treating them as though they never left our lives um, some of you will know that doesn't always work out how you want it to work out sadly you would think it would but um, it, 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 it doesn't always um, it doesn't always do that but that that's the spirit that I want us to have that's the spirit I want you to have towards one another and towards all the people that 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 we deal with because if you're in situations where someone else would not be welcome to come and become part of that then you probably ought not to be there or you ought to be saying something okay because by the spirit writing by the spirit means anybody anywhere at all time could come and participate and what joins us together is that we have determined the word in flesh we have determined word incarnate we have determined it's by the spirit not by the letter and when our spirits come together healing can begin to happen okay let's let's wind this up uh 2 corinthians 3 verse 6 let's read that again what we read at the beginning who also made us competent, sufficient, adequate as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So there is by declaration and implication there a destructive component in the letter as opposed to a life-giving component in the spirit. Now I know we've kind of said this, but I just wanted to say it in those words. By declaration and implication, there is a destructive component in the letter. The letter kills. That's a strong statement, isn't it? The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There's a life-giving component in the Spirit. So I want us running after the Spirit of God and the Spirit of things, okay? Because then, of course, you'd have to ask the question, what does he mean by the letter? I think we've explained that. What does he mean by the Spirit? We've explained that to some degree, but I'm going to give you the final, what he says about that in just a moment. So I wrote this in 2012, which I quite liked. It helped me. If Paul is to be believed, your life is not a post-it note on the refrigerator of history. I like that. I thought it was quite clever. It helps me. You know a post-it note is? Those yellow sticky things that... Stick on the fridge to remind you. Sometimes we can feel that, in essence, really, you know, although God loves me and, yeah, I'm important to God, that actually our life is nothing more than a post-it note on the refrigerator of history. Jenny was here. 
or even worse, she died and forgot the milk, you know, whatever, just like... Your life is not, get this, your life is not, is not a post-it note on the refrigerator of history. Your life is an epistle of importance. Every one of you in here tonight, your life is an epistle, a letter of importance. It's an expression of the dealings of God with humanity. And what makes it more powerful, it's an expression of the dealings of God with this humanity, with this humanity, with this humanity. And because of that, who hasn't been through what I've been through and I'm not got through and what you're going through might be going through what Chris has been going through and what she's been through or what Jenny, and as all this begins to work together, it's an expression of the dealings of God with humanity. You are the Bible being written to your generation. I am... I am more than happy with anybody to share my life story and my life journey. The ups and the downs and the challenges and the difficulties and the graces and the miracles and the, and the faithfulness and, and the presence and the goodness of God. I'm, I'm happy to share it all because... Where it becomes powerful is when this that's being written in the Spirit is an expression of the dealings of God with me. That's when I become a Bible being written, when you become a Bible being written to our generation. So, a couple of things just to bring us through. Um, I like in, in the New King James, it titles the next bit, The Glory of the New Covenant. I'm just going to touch this really briefly. Verse 7, New King James. But if the ministry of death, that's great, isn't it? Written and engraved on stones was glorious. Now, who, who wrote the stuff on the stones? So who was responsible for the ministry of death? So was the point to bring death? The point was actually to bring life by that ministering death to show us that all the letter will ever do is killers so that we would long after the spirit that gives life. God's seems that God's primary method is to make you totally sick of religion so that you'll find him. The sad thing is most religious people don't get it. It's like, no, I wasn't trying to make you happy with this. I was trying to make you sick of this. The ministry of death written and engraved on stones. It was glorious because it, it was good at what it was designed to do. That the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Right, so here you've got it. That thing by the letter was glorious, but it was glorious because it accomplished what it was sent to do, which was to say, this will kill you. But the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious. So if you're wondering, well, shouldn't, shouldn't we have some balance here? No, we shouldn't have some balance here. We should say it like it is. That was for then, it was glorious because it did what it did, but all it did was brought death, but now we have been free to say embrace the ministry of the Spirit. It's more glorious. For if the ministry of condemnation, right, so what does the letter and law always ultimately bring? Condemnation. 
It can never bring anything else. It will always bring condemnation. But it had glory because it was good at bringing condemnation. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. This is the glory that God wants you to come into, is the glory of the Spirit, the letter being written, the wonder of the miracle of your life being an epistle, being a letter, letting the Spirit speak through you to be a message to your generation and to your own life and to me and to us and we together. Verse 10, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And Paul confusing sometimes. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, this is not a mild suggestion I'm giving you today. Okay? This is the nearest thing to give you to a commandment when I don't want to command you because I don't want it to be the letter. But Paul's saying it's the nearest thing. I'm speaking with boldness. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was fading, passing away. So before I just clarify spirit, here's what he meant. When Moses went into the, the presence of God, he would start to glow. Sounds funny, doesn't it? Glowing the dark Moses, you see, there's your next idea for eBay. He would, he would glow from just his absorption of, of meeting the incarnate God, okay? And uh, when he would come out, they, they couldn't look on the brightness, is basically the story. So Moses would wear a veil over his head, you know, bag over his head, however you want to put it, Okay? So that basically, so he didn't scare the living daylights out of them with the extent to which the presence of God was on him. However, Paul's point is not, isn't it amazing that Moses' face glowed? Paul's point is, do you realize it was a fading glory? Because when he touched the spirit, God is spirit, the presence of God, and came out with the law, what happened was the letter was even killing the glory of the presence that had been on him. Okay? So he called it a fading glory. Now I have two theories about this. One was the one proposed here, which I think has the second theory within it, that you know, to protect the others from the fact that he was glowing, he wore a veil. I think the other thing was because nobody wanted to admit that this thing was not sustainable and didn't last. So you could go into the presence of God and come out, you know, glowing like you'd been in a, a nuclear reactor. But it faded. It didn't last. It was not a lasting glory. It was not something that transitioned from God into the world. But what he says is this more glorious thing is that you glow, right? Not in the same way as Moses, but you glow and it doesn't fade, because it's by the Spirit, not by the letter. By the Spirit. It's incarnate in you. So the, his basic lesson here is, listen, what was fading away and passing away, for goodness sake, let it fade away, let it pass away. So here's the last bit. Clarification of the use of Spirit. Verse 16 of that same chapter. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Uh, I don't know which version I'm in here. 
Yeah, I think that's the version I'm in. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Okay, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. We, we don't need a veil anymore because we've got nothing to hide and we've got nothing that needs covering. Everything can be in the open. Everything can be exposed. So the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Okay, pretty clear. Okay, so when we got back to the beginning, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, we could talk about the Holy Spirit, and that's part of the whole process here, but Paul says this, he says, now the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit that brings life. Now, the issue is when he's talking about the Lord, he is talking about really the manifested process of the revelation of God that has come to us in Christ. Right? Their whole focus was on Jesus as Lord. Partly because everybody had to say Caesar was Lord. So when you said Jesus is Lord, he wasn't just a religious you know, choice. He, he was a life-endangering declaration because you're actually saying, Caesar's not God incarnate. Jesus is God incarnate. So he says the Lord is the Spirit. Well, if the Lord is the Spirit, that incarnate one in us... He says this, and when you've grasped that, the Lord is the Spirit, the one who came, the one who is incarnate, the one who now writes in us. When the Lord is the Spirit, he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. We've broken that whole stuff of the whole bent of orthodoxy and theology and religiosity that all gets tied together that makes us have a false presence that even when we do get a real experience only ever fades away when we bring it back into the world. That's what happened with Moses. He experienced the real presence in the environment but any time he came back into the world it just faded. Now you see by the Spirit What's supposed to happen is when we experience the presence and when we come into the world, nothing fades. We don't have a fading glory that says, oh, if we come in here and sing some songs and do some stuff, we have God. But when we go out, it gradually just fades. What's supposed to happen is it's supposed to burn brighter as we come and receive and go out. That's why he said the veil is taken away in Christ because the glory doesn't pass. It's not an experience you have of being somewhere with something. It's something that now is inside of you because now the word is incarnate. What is it? It's the word being written on your heart. It's you being a letter. It's you being the expression now of, of, of the glory of God and the kingdom of God. In the truth of your story, again, you've got to get that. It, that doesn't mean you have to go out there and show everybody how flipping much you have it together. How amazingly faultless you are and how your resistance to any kind of error is just unimaginably beyond measure. No. The glory is as we go out as real people showing in the, where our story is right now that a glory has touched our life that is not is not explainable by any natural written means, but is only explainable because there is a spirit at work in us with our spirit transforming us called the Spirit of God. And our story is being lived out before people. Our salvation is being revealed to the world. The glory of God is being shown. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Now, of course, that's the scary thing because the, the levels of freedom that are around that are what I've already talked to you about.
he said, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Right? With unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Okay, I want you to think about that for a moment. Who do you see when you look in a mirror? Who are you looking at when you look in a mirror? See, if you think, oh, well, what we do is we look at God. No, that's a window. That's not a mirror. The old image was Moses goes into the presence of God. He looks through the window. He sees God. He gets some glory on him. He comes back and it fades because the world takes it away. Now we've changed the terminology. We all with unveiled face, means we're looking clearly, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Or in other words, when you see the glory of the Lord in you, because that's what mirrors show you, mirrors show you you. You look in a mirror, you see that glory in you. Why? Because you realize it's not by the letter, it's by the Spirit. And Christ is in me, the hope of glory. Christ isn't, when I look in that mirror, I see the glory of God because the glory of God is revealed in what he is doing in me. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what does the Spirit of the Lord do? It puts us in the situation that allows us to be, to have an image that is moving from glory to glory by when we see Christ in us, when we look in that mirror and see I am that letter being written. I am that manifested expression of Christ in the earth. I am that incarnate revelation of the living God. It's the letter of my life that brings hope and life to the world, as it does bring hope to me, because I read myself and I read you and we read each other. And if we read that under the light of this glory, then our story is simply a revelation of the grace of God being transformed means to be transforming, okay? I want you to notice that our being transformed. You catch that? Our being transformed. That's, that's what's called in the Greek, the present continuous tense. Our being transformed. Notice it doesn't say that as you look in the mirror, the glory of the Lord, you are transformed. It says you are being transformed. Why are you being transformed? Because your life's a story, It's being written. You are being transformed. So I want to encourage you that with all the stuff you're facing, the challenges, the issues, the difficulties, the the weaknesses, the sins, the perceived righteousness, the struggles, the, 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 the passions, the purpose, the dreams, the hopes, the expectations, that all those things are the spirit writing in your heart. And when you can look in that mirror and say... Well, if I were to look through the letter now, all I see is somebody who's pretty much a failure, could no way claim to be a representation of God. But when I see by the Spirit what God reflects back to me and says, my glory is now shining in you. This is not a fading glory because this is not coming because you kept the letter of the law. This is coming by love from the Spirit. 
This is not measuring who you are so I can make decisions from that. It's telling you who you are from the decisions that I've already made. You are the revelation of God in the world just like Jesus was and you are a letter, Paul says, being written right now. And it's that which is the glory of our story, transforming. So be encouraged. I'm done. And be, and live, and be honest. Don't cover your failures. Don't try and flash your, you know, your good bits. Just be honest with all of it and, and let that glory from the mirror. Just remember that when you, when you get home in the morning, when you look in the mirror, remember that he says that as looking in the mirror, we see the glory, as looking in the mirror. You say, today I see the glory of the Father in this mirror and I call it out of my life as my story's written today in Jesus' name. All right, well done. You've listened good. We're done. <laughs>